Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Bubbles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Bubbles, kick us off, man. All right. So this week we have the, the Liberators on with us, uh, Barry and Christian. Um, we were just talking before we got started recording about uh, your new podcast, uh, the Liberators Network. And I've been a fan. I've been listening to it all. Um, and as I listen, a lot of times I'm like, oh, I wish I could ask that question. So I've got a whole list of questions I'd love to dive into with you guys. Um, so let's see. Let's start with. Um, Whoa, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's give an opportunity for oh. them to introduce themselves. <laughs> okay. So Barry and Christian, would you like to introduce yourself? Give us a little background on what you're doing. Shall we do it the same way we do it when we do a class? Uh, yeah, sure. So then it's very simple. Hey, I'm Christian. And my name is Barry. And we're the Liberators. And that's the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, if you would like to know, uh, we already think it's quite boring to sort of like do very long uh, introductions of ourselves. So if you'd like to know more about us, then just go to uh, liberators.com, our media page, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in short, we uh, try to unleash organizational superpowers. And recently, we reframed it to sort of like give organizational activists the tool to do that, to unleash their own superpowers. I'm not sure if people on LinkedIn agree with that sentiment, but yeah, well, we can talk about that later. But I think our focus primarily is right now on Scrum Masters and helping Scrum Masters um, create environments where people can work with Scrum effectively, can work empirically. Um, That's really the focus right now. Yeah. 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 And you guys are the stewards for the Scrum.org PSM2 course. Um, and you guys created that course originally, right? Like you kind of write from scratch. You're writing you're writing a book and you're always putting all kinds of great content out there, um, different articles that I'm reading all the time. So you guys are pretty humble, but you're, you're, you're contributing a lot to the Agile community. Uh, it's good to hear. And, and it's, it's just, I think it's something that we just, we would do it for free. Well, we actually started doing it for free and um, like eight years ago or something, just as a way to sort of capture your own thinking. And it's nice to hear that it's helpful. Um, and it's also an honor to be on your podcast. Let, let us also mention that. It's really nice to be with you here today to talk about a lot of cool stuff. Cool. So speaking of which, Jeff, I know I know you got questions, man. So jump right in. All right. So um, Christian, let's start with this one. So on one of your previous episodes, um, you were talking about how when you were early in your um, Agile career, you were a new um, Agile coach, you'd come into clients and you'd recommend story points and you'd recommend Jira and user stories. And that's kind of where you would start with these complementary practices. Um, when I think about that, like one of those spots when I start a lot of times with clients is, is their work breakdown. It's still very much in a traditional waterfall. like. Um, you know, let's do some analysis, let's do some development, let's do right. some design, let's do some testing, and then let's do some deployment, right? And and that's their PBIs. And, and I think that's, you know, when your work's broken up that way, you work in a different way. And I'm wondering if that's maybe where, was that what you were trying to address with the complementary practices or was it something else? That's a good question. I think, um, I, and Barry has the same experience. It's just that in the podcast, I recorded it myself, so I didn't want to speak for Barry, but it, I, your experience is similar. I think that Initially, when we started with Scrum, it was mostly about this is story points. Let's try that. Let's let's write user stories. Oh, and there's Jira. Let's use that. Um, I think mostly because that's sort of like very tangible. Yeah. 
Hmm. Like Scrum as a framework might be a bit vague. Like you've got these events and these artifacts and, and, and that's tangible, but then how? So what do you do within the framework? Mm-hmm. And when I started as a Scrum master, I'm like, yeah, okay, it seems to make sense to introduce story points or to introduce user stories. Like it's, for me personally, it gave me the feeling that I was contributing something that makes sense to the organization. Yeah, because you can then sort of organize a workshop around writing user stories. And yeah. it feels like something tangible that you're delivering for the hour rate that you're being hired for. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to say that it was necessarily that it was necessarily bad. I mean, I did a lot, of, I think I did a lot of things that were very helpful and the teams that I did it with are still thankful for a lot of that. Um, but when I look back on it and what, the message that we're saying now in our professional Scrum Master 2 class. I'm a bit like, okay, maybe I did some stuff in the past that I'm not too proud of now that I would have done differently. But then again, that's also the learning journey that everyone goes to, I think. Mm -hmm. And to go back to your question, uh, Jeff, um, I think it was actually about trying to break things down into smaller stuff. Because for me, that that always has been the primary purpose of story points. You want to know it's not about forecasting or predicting or anything else, because I've never seen it work for that. Not mm-hmm. even in the team that I worked with for, for eight years. Um, it's mostly about what is the big stuff? What is the smaller stuff? What do we need to break down? And I think it's still helpful for that, but nothing else. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that you're you're bringing this up. Um, we were talking with Steve not too long ago. Steve and, Porter. Yeah, sorry, Steve Porter. And he he had reminded me of there's more to the Agile Manifesto than just those those four values that I mean, I, I committed those to memories, but I, I could honestly completely forgotten about the, the few sentences that come before it. And in particular, the first one, we are uncovering better ways of developing. And as, as you're talking, that that was the spirit of what was going on in my head was great. We, we've got this double-edged sort of a framework, which is very lightweight, but it doesn't really tactically tell you how to go about doing things. Um other than you know the 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 eleven elements, so you're saying okay, well, how do we how do we manage a backlog? How do we uh, forecast for our organization? Well, tactically, we've got to figure that out. And great, maybe Jira and Story Points at the time was the right way. It was better than what we were doing before. And now you've got the experience and the wisdom of being having done this for so long to look back and say, okay, well, I've uncovered better ways now through um, experimentation. And without that experimentation, we would still be stuck doing it the old way. So I, I, I just... I wanted to highlight that I, I, now that I see that, now that Steve brought it up, all of a sudden I, I, I have a different mindset or mental image of, great, we, mm. this is experimentation and this is just us learning by trying. Yeah, mm. I like the perspective a lot. I don't know if, it, if I saw it in the same spot, but someone else mentioned the same thing to me a couple of days ago. And I was looking back on all this mm. because we're writing a book now. And some of the content that's in there, I wrote that like two years ago. So mm. there's stuff in there that now that I read it again, I'm like, yeah. I think we have to remove the user stories. <laughs> um, but I was thinking the same thing. That's like, we're uncovering new ways to do this. And I know better ways to do this now. Yeah, but I think the biggest mistake that I made um, uh, in my career when I started with Scrum, which is about 10 years ago, I think I missed the uncover part. So when I introduced, I have a project management background, and when I introduced Scrum to my development team, um, I sort of made the assumption that they would not like it to sort of like make it a joint adventure, and we would do the uh, do we would sort of like do the uncovering together. 
So it was an assumption, um, but I took away sort of like all these self-organizing capabilities away from the development team and already sort of like prepare the content of the Scrum framework for them. And uh, for them, I'm just sort of like, I'm just going to sort of like fill the framework in with user stories and story points and stuff like that. But in essence, you take away the uncovering part. Well, that's sort of like, that's what it's all about. So I think that's sort of like what I slowly learned over time, like uncovering, that's the essence. Yeah, I think I really struggled with that too early in my career. It's like, I wanted to do all these things for people because, you know, I used to be a developer and it was like, well, I want to contribute. I want to do something. I want to feel like there's a tangible output to what I'm doing every single day. And so I never really left the space for self-organization to happen. And it became my process. And I was the one updating, you know, JIRA or TFS or um, in, you know, I guess looking back at it now, like, is like, oh, like as much as I was had the positive, I had the right intent. Um, sometimes that was ruining, you know, the development team self-organization because I was doing way too much. Yeah. And I, and I think this goes back to that almost knee-jerk reaction where we have, um, so I, I'm thinking about in organizations, you've got, you've got the teams that struggle through it and eventually they learn and they get to, you know, a good high performing state. And then through the best of intent, um, those teams and leaders say, okay, well, let's just figure out what they're doing today and then just copy it with these, these other teams here um, and expecting the same outcome, but under not uh, fully grasping or um, appreciating that that team's context is likely different than team B and C's context. And how they got to that high-performing state was through uncovering and experimenting and figuring out mm -hmm. what works for them. And simply copying those quote-unquote best practices and applying them over here isn't going to give you the same outcome that they had. Um, it, it may be better, but part of, a, a lot of it was the learning process itself that got them to that state, not just the end state itself. Mm. That's a really good point. I'm kind of thinking now there's a the question that maybe all of us can answer is like, if you would start, I, mean, I know this is impossible, but if you, with the knowledge that you have now, if you would start over that whole journey, what's the first thing you would do again with a new client? Would do again? Yes. Hmm. Now, well, well the, the first thing that you would do, that you would bring back or put focus on. Like if we were to start with a brand new client today, what was the first thing that we, that, that I'd want to do? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that I always do when I start with a new client is really focus on product definition, because if we don't align on what we're optimizing for and what the product actually is, then I feel like there's so many underlying problems that come from that. And that we just, I mean, we're putting band-aid solutions on like a broken arm. Like it just, it just doesn't work. Um, my example is like if like if we're aligned to seeing our product and our development teams aligned around a system instead of something that actually is delivered to a customer, sprinkles start not making sense. Um, our retrospectives, maybe we can't you know affect things um, that go to our end customer, and so like it feels like we can't control anything. Uh, our sprint reviews, no one wants to come to them because they don't mm -hmm. really care. It's not a done product, right? Like all these things are cascading down from that product definition if you don't get that aligned with the organization of what you actually deliver to your customers. So I think that's the number one thing that I, I really try to focus on when we start because I think the system gets set up, um, not that it's incorrectly, but like with a wrong, with a different optimizing goal maybe than what the organization wants. Okay. Yeah, I, I, and I, I totally relate also to the what you mentioned that bringing in users, making sure the sprint review is really helpful. That you have people that are giving feedback. Mm -hmm. um, those are the things. That, what, what are you thinking of, Barry? Oh, without any doubt, 
um, I would always start with a one or two day workshop in which we explore the purpose of Scrum and get on the same page of what Scrum is about. Mm-hmm. Because my biggest and most painful uh, client engagements were the ones where they told me, no, 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 we get Scrum. You don't have to explain it to us. We all know Scrum in this organization. You know that uh, the simple methodology, and there you go already, but uh, different topic. <laughs> and and then along the way, you discover like, oh, crap, they don't know Scrum at all. Yeah. And and, um, and also, um, maybe in, that, in the beginning, really focus on the purpose. Like, why is this organization... Uh, uh, willing to do Scrum? Is it like, uh, for, what are the reasons? Is it like generating more output or getting faster or uh, sort of like, are those the reasons? Or is it more because they want to sort of like uh, deliver more value to the customers sooner? Uh, so I, I would always start with a one or two day workshop to clarify, so why we do Scrum and what do we even mean by Scrum? May I gently push back a little bit on this one? Yeah. I'm thinking, um, how realistic is it that that works? Because I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I've been doing this for 12 years now. I'm still discovering the purpose of Scrum. Sure. So so maybe you can do a start starting point yeah, with, with a workshop. Yeah. I, I would do the same thing. Yeah. I'm just thinking, okay, so then you have people together, you talk for a day about Scrum framework, but do they actually get it? Yeah, but it's fine as well. Because then you don't have to, maybe you don't even have to agree upon the purpose of Scrum, but at one day, let's say it's one day, that will give you already so much information that you can tap into afterwards. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think it will just provide you a lot of information. And in the beginning, I just made the, made the mistake to do too many assumptions up front and then discover along mm. the way, like, oh, um, if I would have, would have known that earlier, then I could have maybe used a different approach, something right. like that. Right. It's interesting. Jeff and I have talked about this in the past where regardless of whether an organization pays for it up front or they pay for it over the next six to eight months, they're going to get that two-day training. But how impactful is it going to be baselining everybody at the very beginning, alignment, common language, common vocabulary, common understanding versus us hodgepodge training one-off people, the same thing over and over again, and all the waste that goes along with that, doing that over six months as we're finding out, oh, they completely don't understand this thing, or, oh, this element, they're, they're totally missing the point of why it exists, or they don't understand the pure, whatever the case may be, versus just sitting down at the very beginning and outlining all that information for everybody, and then mm. moving forward with it. So, uh, bear, uh, I agree with you that it, it is a it is a pretty darn important thing right at the beginning to kind of baseline everybody to it, but not necessarily a requirement. But I, I agree. I certainly see the value in that. And I'm not suggesting, just to be clear, a consultancy sprint zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I call that our discovery and alignment. Like, we just need to, like, figure out what the problems are, what we're going in to solve, what the products are, who's involved in this change, where's our buy-in, what does this actually really look like? You know, um, and then a lot of times, you know, if you once you get that and, and you're and got that in place, that two day training is like, I just think that's essential back to Jeff's point. Um, and if you can um, compound that with the day after training, doing like a team self-selection activity where they select the product mm-hmm. and the team that they want to be a part of. Like, that's a really good way for an organization to say, we're really serious about self-organization and this is going to be different this time that we're, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. It does remind me of another very painful story. It's slightly off topic, but it just comes to mind. Which one? 
Well, no, yeah. It, I know old Barry's story, so no, that's I'm not sure if you know, even know this one, but one time I was hired as a scrum master. I was going to be scrum master for, for a longer period at an organization, and there wasn't a product owner yet. And they told me, don't worry, in a week or in two weeks, the product owner will be there. And six months later, the product owner still wasn't there. <laughs> And I ended up like being a project manager because they said, oh, you're doing great. <laughs> we don't need a, a product owner because yeah. you were doing it. Yeah. So I was like, I ended up being a uh, um, yeah, sort of project manager again, doing the product owner stuff and doing the Scrum Master stuff. And that was sort of like a hard lesson learned as well. So maybe sort of like the question that you asked would be, would be something that you really would like to have in place um, if you start as a Scrum Master. Just make sure that you also have like, I wouldn't say the right team in place, but I've learned that having a, a product owner that that that's sort of like, that you already know who's going to be my product owner. Um, mm -hmm. That's for, for me like a key experience as well. So for Barry, for the, for the listeners, you know, what, if you don't mind, what were some of those lessons that you learned by having to wear both of those hats in that experience? <laughs> well, like I, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I started as a project manager and there was a reason that I moved to Scrum um, because I was basically responsible for determining the scope. So what is the team going to build? But also to make sure that the way of working, that the team gelled as a team together um, and that they, they sort of like helped them discover the process that helped with that. And so there was sort of like, in a way, I wanted to, try to have them done uh, do as much work as possible um, and on one hand protect the team to like prevent them from being overloaded of doing too much work so it was sort of like constantly switching hats um, i'm not saying that that is the role uh, for a product owner but in a way sure as a product owner you would like to sort of hey, like, you want more value delivered right like yeah. but, then, but then as a scrum master you're like hey we yeah. need to respect the process and like we need to have all these things going on and we need self-organization and it's yeah. like you're fighting each other, right? A little bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm also kind of thinking because we're talking about things that you would do differently now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking one of the projects that I work, products that I worked on was like the coolest product I've ever built with a team, with the coolest team I've ever worked with. <laughs> we never talked to actual users. Hmm. And, and I, it was pure developer happiness. Just create the most <laughs> awesome possible product. Um, but it totally failed. Nothing happened. Barry knows the story. Um, it crashed and burned. Um, but the thing is, like, that would be... Was it the Microsoft Zune? Were you working <laughs> no, on the Zune? No, 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 no. no, it was... I, I don't think I can name the product that... that, that <laughs> I'm just teasing. Would be too happy, but I think the, the, inter, the, most inter, the most important thing I would actually do is to start with who are actually users that are using this product. What, what do they care about? Let's meet those people. Because for me, that's so often missing... In, in working with Scrum, even though that's sort of the whole point, but it's often missing. And mm -hmm. there was this one sprint planning where I was, and it's still a memory that's always like a good illustration of that. The whole team was sitting around the table. They were discussing this item from the product backlog and they were going back and forth over what it meant. And I was just sitting there like with my arms, like, how do you call this? Like over crossed. each other? Yep. With my arms crossed. And I was like, let's just call the user that came up with this idea. And they, were, they just continued having the conversation because no one really had the balls to call the customer. And after 45 minutes, they actually gave in because I kept repeating, let's just call the customer. 
And then they called the customer. It took three minutes to answer the question and have an even better idea. And that's something that I see so often, that there's mm-hmm. such a huge distance between the people that you're building it for and what you're building. And my experience is developers really want to help users mm-hmm. s- solve problems. So make a distance smaller. That would be the first thing I start with, before Scrum, before anything else. Yeah. I think that also brings us to an experiment that we recently wrote with Johanna Chateau, the ones with whom we are currently writing the Zombie Scrum book. Mm-hmm. I think we can already share that one. It's an experiment that's called the customer distance metric. So basically what you do is make great transparency about the distance between the development team and the customer. And for some organizations, it's uh, shockingly, uh, it's quite a shocking distance. Yeah, yeah. that ahead. sounds awesome. I, uh, I, I often articulate that as the bureaucracy index, like how many yeah. layers of bureaucracy do you have between the customer and your development team? So that, that's awesome. I'm, I'm really excited by this. Do, do you mind talking a little bit more about it or do we need to wait until the book comes out? Yeah, well, the book will give a, a bit more of a step-by-step description on how to do it, but it boils down pretty much to what you say. It's calculating the number of hops that you have to go to through on average to actually get to the actual person using a feature. Um, and it's just a, basically, it's an exploration process. Like, let's let's put on the Sherlock hats and see how many hops we have to go through. And the longer it is, the well, the less agile you are. Mm. Um, and it's just a small experiment that we have in the book. We have many more. Um, and I think it's a really fun one to do. I think that's, sorry, Jeff, real quick. I was just going to say, that I, I'm really excited by that. And um, like one of the red flag cautions that I would throw out there is, and I, and I always over communicate this with the students is don't confuse your boss with your customer. Don't confuse the director with your customer, any other stakeholder with your customer. It's the customer who is putting in the request and wants to give you money for that thing. Um, that's whose voice or who we're trying to delight, not necessarily our boss. Yeah, Sorry, and Jeff, was, what were you gonna check? yeah, and I was just going to say, um, I just finished reading uh, Todd Miller and, and Ryan Ripley's new book, Fixing Your Scrum, and um, they have this nice quote in there about like the quickest way to de- demotivate uh, your team is to separate them from your customer, mm. and and I completely agree with that because I talk about that all the time with people, and I, I just I wanted I was going to say the same thing you were going to say, Jeff, like you know it's not someone in your organization unless it's an internal application, it's whoever's paying for this thing that we're building. And the closer you can get your development team to real customers, I think it's it's just your backlog starts focusing on customers. Your delivery starts focusing on customers. Like the team's excited to see the results with the customers. Like everything just works so much better when you when you bring the customers into it. Yeah, exactly. Or actually go to the customers. Exactly. Which is something yep. that Barry and I both used to do in our respective companies, actually take the developers to the customers, which was always very, <laughs> a bit awkward at times, but it was like a lot of fun, right? Yeah, we hired a van and, and in the van sort of like that, that, that fitted the entire development team. And then we drove to, to the customer and we unloaded the developers. <laughs> but it was the, one of the best events ever. Like before that was sort of like building for a more than a year on, on one product. And um, the development team never uh, met the real customer. So there's always like management in between, and there were lots of there was lots of confusion about so what do you, what do they mean by this feature? What do they mean by this product backlog item? And then always they needed to explain it to management, and then management would talk to the to the customer. And then after a year, which is quite a long time, but after a year, we're like, why don't we maybe just do an experiment and and bring the developments in direct contact with the users? But on, up to, until that point, the assumption was that the developers needed focus and the developers d- 
didn't want to talk to users. They or just couldn't, right? Like, well, they can't yeah, do that. And, and, <laughs> yeah, they like to work at night in the dark drinking Red Bull. But sort of like, uh, <laughs> so yeah. actually, this, this question kind of came up, um, and I'd love to hear your guys' take on it. Was I, I was explaining something very similar to a class that I was in, and um, an individual was saying, you know what, um, but our developers don't like talking with customers. They, they, they really don't like doing that. And uh, I challenged him a little bit on that, but like what, how, so if, if I, sorry, let me, let me reset here. Um, How do you approach that with people who are kind of, they think, and maybe they're right, maybe their, their developers really don't like talking with customers, but how do you um, approach that conversation with people who are maybe uncomfortable or think their, their team isn't ready or unwilling to actually talk Mm. with customers? Well, my own experience is that um, there are absolutely going to be developers that don't like to talk to customers. Just like people in, there are people in general that don't that don't really feel comfortable in that kind of interaction where you know you're sitting in front of someone who's paying for your product, and that creates a dynamic that some people find scary. But in this case, I would just say, okay, there are probably some developers in the teams that are willing to do this, and maybe they can help the other developers do it, mm. or they can just do it. I mean, the whole team doesn't have to talk to the user. If it's just two developers, I'm already happy. Um, and you can also practice those skills together. That's what we did in the company that I work with. We just did a lot of preparation exercises where we wrote some questions together and we did some small, some simple role play. Mm where I played the customer and that worked really well. Um, Mm. We had some people in our team that were, um, well, partially on the autistic spectrum. So for them, it was difficult to talk to, just social interactions were difficult for them, Mm. but doing this kind of preparation really helped. So I would always recommend to try something like that and see what happens. Yeah. And maybe also don't make it a too big topic. Um, it doesn't have to be like um, to get a t- uh, with 25 users at the same time. You can also say, what if we would invite one user for the upcoming sprint and one of you is going to pair up with him or her um, to just share some ideas and experiences. Um, it's exposure therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but why not? Yeah, but you can also, uh, that was also a mistake that I made in the, in the beginning. It was like, for me, it was such a huge topic that the development team automatically uh, started to think like, oh, wow, this is seemingly, this seems to be a big thing. So mm. Uh, mm. I'm not sure if I want to contribute to that. So you can also just, in a very lightweight manner, just bring it to the team and ask them, so who's willing to uh, join, uh, go to the customer next week or uh, meet some users, something like that. It's, yeah. yeah How do you respond? Yeah, so I got a pretty good story, actually, I think, on this. So I think like most things, you just get started. Like you just kind of have to just jump into it. Um, I was building a product. Um, I was a development team member. And no, actually I was a scrum master on this one. I was a scrum master and um, we were building a um, some software for a retail company. And what we did on day eight of every single sprint is we would drive to one of these retail organizations that were in our city. And we would just, we already organized it where we'd go sit down with the user and we'd have them run through a little script of what we're actually doing. So this was like not done working software at all. Like this was like, Hey, we've developed it. We've done some initial testing, but it's not, it's not like done. It doesn't meet our definition done yet. Um, And then all of a sudden we would, we would learn things. They would go through this and be like, Oh, they can't figure out how to tab to the different screens or they can't figure out how to like 
save and they're scrolling way up and they don't have to do that. Like we need to move some things around. This is not very user-friendly for them. Um, this is not how they're used to using it. So we spent a lot of time with that. And then we would show this at like this executive, you know, we'd have executives in our sprint review and they would be like, oh, we really think you should change it to look like this or it should work like this. And we'd be like, well, we have real users and we have recordings here. We could show you of like how they've actually interacted with this. And, and we had it that way, but we changed it because everybody was struggling with it. And would you like to see it or do you just trust us? And then, you know, they were just ended up usually trusting us to, okay, you know better than us and you're already talking to users. This is great. And so um, it worked out really well to do that. And I think it really empowered the team. What we did is we had somebody who was more of a UX specialist uh, that was part of our development team. That person went and paired with one or two other people. The person that they were pairing with was generally starting and they would just take notes and they would like watch and maybe ask a couple questions. But the UX person kind of like took the lead or the person with that deep specialty. And then eventually there were some things that happened on the team. That person, I think, got sick for a little bit, had some family things that happened. And just the team would started doing it on their own and they just started owning it. And they just, this was just a cadence. This was a thing we did every day eight of our two week sprint. Uh, we would, you know, go to a different store and run these through these scenarios. So it was a pretty cool um, situation. I haven't been able to, you know, duplicate that everywhere, but um, in that case, it worked really well. That's such a good example. And it really, it's a, it's the theme, the underlying theme is go to actually physically go to your customers because mm. that's what, the, yeah. what was in your story, Barry, and also in Jeff's story. That's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, asking for 15 minutes of their time, like, isn't that much. Like, you're, I'm here, can I just have 15 minutes of your time to look at this? Like, this is going to impact you in the future. And most people are more than happy to give you that time. Yeah, and one of my best projects that I was part of, or at least that I was the most proud of as well, is that um, I used to work with a web agency. And they always had, like, external clients, so to say. So with one project, uh, the client said, okay, we're just going to create a lot of uh we're just going to empty an entire, um, what is it called, department mm -hmm. um, in our organization and make it available for your developers. And then, um, like, from all the levels of that client, like management, um, marketing, sales, everyone was also uh, taking a desk on that same department together with the developers. And it was just uh, about 50 people sitting on, on the same level of the organization uh, just collaborating with each other. Um, so they, did, they didn't even have to travel anymore. Just, just uh, We just became... And they also... And that was kind of cool. They Everyone needed... It was more like symbolic. Everyone needed to... There was a session and everyone needed to throw away their business cards um, because a lot of people were also hired from different departments. There were sort of people from a design company. There were people from the test agency. Uh, we brought a lot of back-end to front-end developers and then you had the client themselves. So everyone was sort of like from different departments or in different companies. And during sort of like, it was more a symbolic moment. Everyone sort of like, let's throw away all our business cards. From now on, we've got one focus and that's building this, this product. And it doesn't really matter what your background is, et cetera. That's a good example. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I was, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, never underestimate the destructive power of a cubicle wall um, and just, as as you were talking about that that index of the distance from your development team to the customer, I was also thinking about the distance between your developer with the developer that they're working with on the team. Um, it's it's crazy how just a cubicle wall all of a sudden just shuts down communication between team members. And and I'm 
I want to be deliberate. I'm not saying you have to have a co-located team, but I just would encourage people to think about like what what are those subtle things that stop you from just reaching out and having a conversation? Is it that we're all not in the room? Is it we're not located in the same building? Is it we're not in the same time zone? Just the the more you can remove even those smaller impediments to just having good communication with each, with each other is going to enable better collaboration with each other. So not just for thinking about lines of communication with your customer, but even lines of communication internal with your development mm, team yeah. or your scrum team. Uh, totally. Yeah. Maybe just one more example that now that you mentioned this one is I'm thinking of a project that I worked on. Uh, it was for the Dutch railways or the, uh, it's called, they're called ProRail. They manage all the train tracks in, in the Netherlands. And they have, they have like a whole control room with a lot of people sitting there that do all the, in, whenever an incident happens on the, on the tracks, they manage the incident, make sure that all the parties that are needed are involved in the right way and in the right order. Um, and they needed new software for this. So the people responsible for this and the product owner, and it was a very clever decision. They did the same thing. They, they rented an entire floor of the of the office building that was on top of the control room. Mm. So the good thing was that they they had five scrum teams initially. It grew to seven over time, but they were all on the same level. There were no walls in there. There were some small rooms where people could work if they wanted to, but it was mostly open. So you could literally just walk around the whole uh, floor. And if there was something that they wanted to know about users, they just went down into the control room, which was actually quite exciting because it's like, they're coordinating all the train traffic in the Netherlands. Um, and these and these people were working there for 24 hours a day. So they could just walk down and ask questions. That's mm -hmm. like the most awesome thing I've ever seen in terms of a product owner really having mandate to demand that it was going to be going to happen like this. That's pretty cool. Actually, that that's it's, it's more a question. I don't have the answer. One of the most interesting and powerful concepts that Scrum.org launched recent uh, years is uh, Scrum Studio. Do you know Scrum Studio? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this originally was coined by Gunther Verheyen. I think, I think so. it was sort of like the, the initiator of this initiative, but it's Scrum Studio. It's sort it's of this like, idea. Yeah. It's this idea. It's, it's, the, the question is, and I honestly, I don't know what the current state of Scrum Studio is or if do you guys know that we've got four PSTs on the call? <laughs> I, I was I was gonna say pretend like I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well it's a really good idea because yeah. it's like it I, I think we were involved in some of the initial brainstorming sessions with a lot of people from the at least the Dutch and Belgium communities where Gunther is also part of of course. Hmm. Um, and the idea is to when you have a large organization and you want to develop a product with Scrum create a small, smaller organization in a different building even um, with a different culture where you can start building a different environment that's yeah. more conductive of working with Scrum. Um, because okay. we've learned, I think, over time that doing Scrum in, an, in a very large existing organization is very, very difficult. Yeah, so there's an example of a Dutch company. It's a pension fund. And um, they knew that if... Uh, they were gonna. They needed to launch a new product in a quite short amount of time, and they knew if way if they would uh, set up that Scrum team within their current organizational structure with all the the governance that was going on, it was never gonna happen. So they sort of like separated uh, that Scrum team. It was a well, multiple Scrum team actually, about thirty or fifty people. 
uh, they separated them in a different building next to the large, uh, larger office building and sort of set up the idea of a Scrum Studio and gave them sort of like they did they could create their own rules. They did not have to align with the current governance, etc. So they became much more agile because the yeah, the the larger organizations sort of acknowledged that they were not there yet. They were not really um, embracing agility to the max. So therefore, they started a Scrum Studio concept, and it worked really well for them. I usually call that an org within an org. So like, let's just carve out a little piece of the org, say you're going to work differently over here. And then like, so yeah, Scrum Scooter or org within an org. Yeah. So I use that concept a lot with clients um, mm. when getting, especially, especially big ones. Cause it, you're right. You just, you want to go deep and you want to get really good at something before you try to scale it throughout the whole entire organization. Um, I've seen that not work so well when people like take this more of a shotgun approach where it's like, let's start it everywhere and no mm. one's doing it well. And then people get a really bad taste in their mouth of what Scrum is because they're just, they're not doing it. Like, right, they're not creating done working increments and people have all these misconceptions and agile coaches they may have or Scrum masters aren't maybe well-performed and they're running all over the place trying to fix things. And there's just a lot going on that people can't get their arms around. Um, so I, that, yeah, and- I, Go ahead. Oops, sorry. I was going to say the, especially in large organizations, the, the the structure that has been built there over time has been there to support the, the their way of doing it, not this other way of doing it. And so now you've got to to win the war of hearts and minds, but also the the structure that is going to be working against you because it's so counter uh, to the other way that they were they were working. Um, as Barry and Christian, as you as you were explaining this. Um, I think a lot of people will resonate with the idea after hearing it, but I think a lot of us think about it as skunk works. Um, and I'll, I'll have to find the the keynote, the guy who does it, but he talks about the original skunk works. Um, and it was the the company that made the original B-52 bomber. I, I can't remember if it's Boeing. I think it Northrop, is. But, uh, Northrop? Isn't it Northrop? It's it's some air, air um, airspace company. I can't remember which one it is, but they made a lot of the secret projects for the U S government um, during the cold war. Um, and th- like they made the stealth bomber as well. Um, but that's exactly what they did was they, they realized that there was just too much bureaucracy in place. And I, I'm not, when I'm using that word bureaucracy, I'm not necessarily meaning it in a negative connotation. It was just that it was the structure that was there for how they were developing these typical types of planes. But what they needed was rapid experimentation and more fit for purpose and just this one thing. Like they did, they actually didn't create any prototypes. They were just literally cutting and welding right onto the, the plane as they were building it um, and just eliminated all this all these additional steps that they wouldn't, they would have had to do if they were in the other organization. And exactly like you were saying, they, they had literally set up a circus tent outside of the uh, original facility and everybody was coming into work into the circus tent. It was super classified, very secret because of what they were building, but um, it was exactly what, what you were explaining there with that uh, scrum studio concept. It's also a very powerful ritual. If you have like a circus tent or just, you, you actually physically have to go to another place. Yeah. Maybe throw away your business cards. I mean, just the ritual there is already very important to say, okay, we now have a new identity. We are this group of people that are going to do this very hard. We're going to develop this very difficult. If anyone asks what's going on, then you can just say, ah, just a bunch of clowns developing. <laughs> and, and just a quick add, add on to that, um, you know, oftentimes, and I think, Jeff, I, I probably stole this from you, or maybe it was Chad, but just articulating to scrum teams, like, that's great if you can do it, but if you can't, with the mindset that we want you to have is what if you, everybody on the team quit, moved across the street and opened up shop. And now you are your own little organization and you are selling your product or service to the, to your 
you know, the company that you're working for now. Think about why would they choose you? Like, what's the quality level and the service that you're giving? What's your competitive advantage over going with somebody else? And if you can think about yourself as that little org within an org, I think there's there, there's a pretty important mindset shift there with your with your team members as opposed to, oh, it's just we're showing up and doing the same thing every day. It's, oh, no, even though it's an internal customer, we're, we're still here to support a customer. And what are the metrics that maybe we can put in mm. place to quantify the value that we're delivering to the organization in that way? We can maybe even connect this back to where we started our conversation with the with the tools like Jira, user stories, philosophy, all these other things you can use. Is that the things we're talking about now? To what is actually the purpose of your work together? What's the value that you're delivering to your customers? Maybe the things that we're talking about now, Scrum Studio, Org within an Org, these are the things you should start with when you work with a new team to make sure that you start there mm-hmm. instead of with all these practices that are not going to create any actual change. Yeah. And I think the practices are just so easy, right? Like I, I hear these stories and they sound amazing. Maybe even they hear our customer stories that we just told before. And people are like, oh, so on day eight of the sprint, we should go out to every customer. And it's like, <laughs> well, yeah. no, like not everyone. And like, it, you know, it could, this could not work for you if you don't have the mindset that like we need to inspect and adapt. And we really want a feedback mindset over an analysis mindset, right? Like unless you have the right mindset, a lot of these practices don't, they don't work to, you know, at all. So it starts with that, I think. And I think mindset's so much harder than practices. So people just hear a practice and they're like, if we do that, then we're going to be successful, you know? Mm-hmm. Because maybe that's also, that's maybe also how most people learn. Yeah. I mean, that's maybe even how I learn is you start by doing something with practices. And over time you start seeing, oh, this is the point of this practice that I'm using. So maybe it's also very hard. What does it mean when you say start with a mindset? Mm, I was yeah. thinking about this just this afternoon while doing my grocery shopping. <laughs> this is the stuff I apparently think about while doing that. But like, what does it actually mean when we say you need to have the mindset? I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I, I think if, we, if we take one step back, I think the, the biggest problem that I have with introducing practices is that um, I've been part of quite a lot of, let's call it agile transformations. Um, and then the idea was, okay, in week two, we in all the teams, in all the 20 Scrum teams, we are right now going to introduce this practice. Um, so I think um, it's not wrong if you um, introduce practices, but I would like to encourage the team to pick their own practices. And, and then yeah. probably the mindset will already be more about let's sort of like explore and discover what kind of practices are going to work mm-hmm. for us instead of like rolling out practices throughout the entire organization yeah i like to like show teams many different practices and have them experiment with them you know early and often and try different ones and then iterate on them and then like once they know like here's a whole bunch of tools that you can use these complementary practices now pick what makes sense for your team and adapt it like I think that's a different thing, but that you're right. There are a lot of teams out there where it's like, I've never heard of any of these things. And maybe I don't even know where the resources are to go look for them. And if it's been done before, can you just show me a couple so I can find out if they're valuable or not? So I I do agree with you guys, both you guys that like, you do kind of have to start doing before you can get to the mindset. But um, I think I was referring back to the mindset and the whys of what you're doing is really, um, is really important. And I think a lot of organizations that maybe just start or, um, or lose the why, uh, they, mm-hmm. they they start to abuse maybe some of these practices or, or use them for something they're not supposed to be used for. 
you 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 hit on what I was thinking right there was the the why right these all these complementary practices are just the the tactical way of of achieving something if we can just make sure that we've got clarity of why we're doing this so it's not we're not asking our teams to use story points for the sake of using story points we're asking the teams to use story points to uh, facilitate conversation around the, the the size, the scope of things, and we want to be able to forecast things into the future. Now, if you find another way of doing that that works for you, that's awesome. Um, but if you're not sure where to start, okay, maybe you want to take a look at story points. But without understanding why you're being asked to use story points, and you're just told you need to use story points, okay, well, I'll use story points, but I I may or may not actually even achieve the outcome that somebody is asking for us to try to to work towards. Yeah, that reminds me of something you guys said in a couple episodes. Uh, you said planning is useful, planning's plans are helpful, but detailed plans are wasteful. And I think that's really insightful and something for a lot of people to think about um, because the act of planning, that story point uh, to get a conversation going and alignment on what things actually are, I think that's really important. Um, but the actual detail plans of, you know, six months from now, we're going to be working on this task or that task, like that's that's really wasteful because that's never going to happen in a complex world, especially in software development, right? Exactly, yeah. I'm kind of thinking maybe going back to the why, like the why question is, um, there's this liberating structure called nine whys. And what we sometimes ask people to do is so make a list of all the things that you're doing to achieve something. So for example, you could say, make a list of all the practices that you use while mm. working with Scrum. And then you basically start asking the question, so what do you think this will make possible for you or your team? And I think if you ask that question about story points or user stories, then you can start having the right conversation. Because if people start answering for example, for story points, like now we can actually predict what's going to happen three weeks from now. Then you have a good conversation, a topic for a conversation. It's That's what we do point. with the yeah. product owner too in the yeah. PSN2 class. So, yeah. That's very good point. Yeah, it just made me think of um, Julie. Julie Everett uh, introduced Jeff and I to Teresa Torres's. Um, do you remember what she called Opportunity Tree? Yeah, the opportunity tree. Just uh, exactly like what you, what you were just talking about, but thinking about, um, uh, you know, what do you, what do you, want and then great when you have that thing that you want what does that actually enable for you and then removing the thing that you want and opening up your perspective to what are other things that you could be doing to to yeah. achieve that exactly as you were just kind of talking through that nine why uh exercise just again um removing the, the almost the confirmation bias that we already understand the right way to be doing something but if we really just took a step back and said what is it we're trying to go after um and remove that that solution that's right in front of us. Well, what are other things that we could be doing? And are any of these other things actually better or better fit for purpose uh, for us and our team uh, to, to achieve this outcome that we're going after? I think it's a great tool for, yeah. for teams and product owners to be thinking about when, we're, again, Scrum is an outcome-based framework, right? We, we want to achieve outcomes. It's not about the tasks. It's about the outcomes that we're going after. Yeah. But hmm. Can I introduce a, maybe a, it's a big, it might be a big topic, uh, a bit of a controversial topic as well. Oh, we oh, love those ones. Love that. Go for yeah. it, but I think if you would sort of like eliminate the entire consultancy industry, uh, that would already save a lot of problems. Why do you think? Sorry? What, wh why? Why do you think? Oh, why? Yeah, why? why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, that's a, to, to be clear, I've been part of it. 
I like to say that I'm not part of it anymore. That uh, as the liberators, what we do is not classic consultancy. Um, but as a, um, uh, and just be clear, there are a lot of good consultants and coaches out there, but there are many, many coaches that I'm really wondering, like, you're sort of like more damaging the industry than, than, than helping the industry. Um, because a lot of, um, especially in the Netherlands, like there's a growing community of freelancers going on and they want to, want to feel valuable as well, of course. Um, and I've been part of a consultancy agency myself and a way to show value was to do something tangible at the clients that you worked for and working on mindset, um, like we've improved the mindset this week. That's kind of vague. Like, so, so what, what did you really do for your money? Like uh, the client's paying a lot of money for you. So um, introducing practices is far more tangible. Like, okay, yeah, I've worked on mindset, sure. But I've also introduced the concept of user Epics. stories. Uh, yeah, and now we are sort of like, we have this huge backlog. And when I've, I've did some awesome work because I encourage them to create epics and create user stories and create features, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these practices are introduced by, let's say, um, consultancy agencies that in their experience think that that's their way of adding value. Yeah, um, I was thinking about um, Patrick Lynchiani's kind of got the two ways that he looks at organizations where you got the smart side and the healthy side of an organization. Smart being like, how do we market? How do we do software development? How do we do financing? How do we do accounting? Things like that. Like those practices are taught at, you know, universities and and pretty well known, right? Pretty standard, um, almost table stakes, you know, these days. And then you have like the people side of things, which is like your organization health. Like, do we have politics? Can we address conflict? Like, are we accountable to each other? Um, do we continuously improve? Like all these things that are, that, that really make an organization successful. And it's really hard if you're one of those consultants that says, I'm going to help you with your organizational health. Um, because people can't quantify that. Right. And so it's like, well, I don't really see what you're doing, but it's going to feel different. Right. Like, and that's a, that's a hard thing to sell somebody on, but you're going to know if it's not there. Um, so I don't know. And then, and then it becomes worse because then they're going to say, and here's a maturity model. And to surprise, yep. currently you're at level one. It's a five level maturity model, but you always start at level, uh, level one. No so we're, we're playing all our greatest hits now. Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> like, let me give an example of what we're talking about. Like uh, one of our patrons Chris, and good friends, Chris Davies, he, he, he sent me a, a message today and he asked like, and I recognize this because in a lot of, Agile coaches, I did the same thing. When they start with a new team, they organize a one-day workshop to make team agreements or a team manifesto or something like that, or maybe even half a day. As if that's how how that works. Like, if that's how it works, you, you have this team, this complex social dynamic between people, and then you do a four-hour workshop and you have a team manifest. And that's just not how this, this is an ongoing process. You're constantly, nav- I mean, Barry and I are constantly navigating how we work together. So teams have to do that as well. But for some reason, for consultants doing that one day workshop is how they mm. think they're adding value. But if you don't do anything else after that workshop, then what's the value? You've, you have right. a nice poster. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But that's it. Yeah. yeah. It's a good so- example of this. Uh, trying not to sound like a shill with this, but I, I really, feel like the EBM stuff is kind of a, an, an, I don't want to say an answer to this, but it should be helping with this is how can you quantify um, your organizations getting better? And 
is it to Jeff, what you were saying, smart versus healthy. And it, as you were talking through those, I thought about, oh, well, those, those are partly the EBM metrics, right? Your, your employee satisfaction, your customer satisfaction, your uh, ability to innovate and your time to market stuff. All of those are in there. So I, I think, Barry, I'm not, I'm certainly not disagreeing with you. I, but um, where, where I was thinking was anybody can say that they're going to run a workshop to, to improve your organization. But if, unless you baseline that and actually have some quantifiable evidence to, to follow up with it, um, you know, I, I've got a road in Alaska that I can sell you and it's real dirt cheap, right? Like it's just blowing smoke up somebody's rear end. So um, I think the more, the more that we can quantify the changes um, with some sort of metrics. Um, the more I, I think as consultant internal as a as a scrum master. I still think of myself as, as a consultant when I'm there, um, or as a true consultant, being external and being a third party um, organization that you're working with. I, I do think there there is value in thinking about how do you quantify your effects on an organization. Uh, and by by your, what do you mean in that case? Your your as a consultant or as a scrum master or either. Either. So I was going to say, like every day when I walk out of a client, uh, you know, location, I I do kind of self, you know, introspect and say, did I provide value today? And did I provide as much as I think I could today, given the search, you know, circumstances, what I knew, what I had to deal with? And I hope the answer is yes, a lot more than it's no, um, or. You know, and I think that everybody should kind of hold themselves accountable from that, not just from a consultant standpoint, but every person that goes to work on a product should ask, am I providing value today? Or if I was in an interview today, would the would the company have hired me today knowing what I was going to deliver for them? You know, like, would they have wanted to pay for this if we were starting over right now today? Um, and would I still want to work here? Maybe those are good questions to ask, too. I think. I think that that self-reflection is really important um, and thinking about value internally and then as a team too is, is something that everybody should do. You used to, um, Jeff, uh, I, I thought this was really interesting, but uh, even when we were both full-time working at an organization, um, we would do kind of engagements in different areas. Um, we were almost internal consultants as, as agile coaches. But one of the things that Jeff would ask at the end is, um, you know, not only how satisfied are you with me and what I was able to provide, but if I was an outside consultant, would you pay X amount for me on a daily basis or an hourly rate? And that helped him understand, like, am I really worth the, this value that I should, that I want to be delivering to this, this area inside the organization? And so th that's, that's what I mean when I'm talking about the mindset of sure. uh, that consultant mindset of just really wanting to deliver value, um, regardless of what your your job description or your role description is. Am I just jumping in and providing the most about the value to whoever my customer is um, that I that I can? So that that's that's really what I meant by with that mindset and well, thinking about how do you quantify value delivery. I'm kind of thinking that if consultants all over the world would do would use EBM met, EBM like metrics to sort of quantify the impact that they're having, um, then a lot of things would probably go much better. But mm -hmm. the one thing that would worry me a little bit is that then you probably have because that that's what would probably happen is a whole but a whole group of consultants that say these are the metrics you have to use. Whereas I'm more like, okay, let the teams determine themselves which metrics they want to use. And the EBM metrics are very helpful, but maybe there are some other ideas they have. And um, but then again, you can also help with that as a consultant. Yeah. So, but yeah. what I'm just questioning that. If an organization wants to succeed uh, with Scrum, 
then to what order they need external support. Hmm. That's more something that I'm questioning. And actually, I would like to maybe even put it as a stronger message. If an organization needs an agile coach to succeed with Scrum, then that's just a dysfunction. Or a lack of skill set, right? Like, I mean, they maybe aren't as experienced or maybe they're not a Scrum master yet. They're a Scrum you know, you know, novice in some cases. I mean, a lot of times what, what I see happen is someone goes through a, you know, two day course and now they're the scrum master and this is their first exposure to scrum and they're doing the best that they can. And, but they have really, you know, no idea. I mean, they, they understand how the chess pieces move, but they have no idea what strategies that you can apply. And so to ask them to be a chess master or a scrum master is kind of a big ask at that point. And I think that people need help and it can become from external or internal. But I do think that an external change agent is different than an internal change agent where like, mm-hmm. I, I guess for me personally, like I have no problem walking into a C-suite and saying, this is your problem. And if we don't change it, you're going to be dealing with this problem forever, right? Like I don't see any way around it. And how can we address this together? Um, where somebody who's maybe at a scrum master role and they're new to it, they're like, I don't feel comfortable going into at that level the organization and having that conversation. Cause I don't feel like I I've been through this enough to, to have that type of conversation. Um, and, and, and maybe I'm not worried about getting fired and they are, you know, like there's, there are certain things that an external change agent can do that maybe an internal one can't. Sure. And I fully agree with that. It, it's kind of a strong message that I'm sending out there, but what we see happening a lot is that, um, and we're jumping from consultants to agile coaches, not saying that every consultant is an agile coach, of course. Yeah. Yeah, the other way around. But what we a bit pitfall for agile coaches could be that they get in the way of uh, the growth of a scrum master, mm-hmm. and that's something that they should be sort of like be aware of. And then because then you'll get this scrum master is only team level, and the agile coach they will take yeah. care of middle management. And then in some organizations you've got the enterprise agile coach, and they will take care of C level. And then sort of like, that's just not something that, that, that I believe in, that it's a good approach. Yeah, yeah and I, I think agree with you. Point, yeah. Our key point is always, if, if, if your choice is to work with the Scrum framework, then all you need is Scrum masters, product owners, and development teams, and yeah. together Scrum teams, of course. They can do all the product-related work, and they can figure this stuff out on their own. But you can bring in an external Scrum master to help. Why would you call that agile coaches? These are just people that are really good at Scrum. Um, and I think that's sort of, it's just a language thing, but it, it, I think it's an important difference that, that, that we're trying to make always there. Yeah, but I think you guys made the point if everybody who's an agile coach or consultant right now says, I'm a scrum master, they just cut their bill rate in half or something like that or in a third, yeah, right? Like this point that's happening in our industry that agile coaches get more money because there's all, there are all these expectations. And maybe just to go back to one thing you mentioned, Jeff, about your example of walking into the C-suite and basically basically telling it how it is. I, I like your example also because it the skill to walk into the C-suite and say the hard stuff, like truth to power, hmm. the people in the organization need to learn that. Yeah. I mean, if I, I've been in the situation where I was sort of the external coach and I was like, I'll, I'll go talk to management because no one else does. But then I left and no one had that skill. So it all, it all collapsed afterwards. Hmm. Um, so also there, it's important that they develop that skill. But maybe you can lead the way and show how to do it. Um, but still, it's an important skill. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we were talking earlier um, 
in this podcast about how like, or at least maybe I was, about how early on in my career, like giving space for self-organization was really hard for me with the development team. And I think that even as we've matured, right? Like maybe that's, that you bring up a really good point, Christian, like with executives or management or whatever, like we need to be showing and and then backing away, like doing that sometimes it, it's a Band-Aid solution. It's not a long-term solution, right? You have to build those skill sets up and in, in all the organizations you're working with. So yeah, yeah I think that's yeah. a really good, that's a really good insight. You want to mention the thing about components? Yeah, 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 yeah. Why not? Yeah. It's well, another greatest hit. Yeah, well, it's still sort of like a thought that I'm sort of like refining in my mind. But it's like I just don't uh, – something that I just don't understand is that a lot of people working with Agile and Scrum, let's say the coaches and consultants, they introduce concepts like feature-driven development, like you take a slice – uh, out of something that delivers value, a bit of the testing, a bit of design, a bit of whatever, and then you sort of like offer that piece of value to the client instead of like using a component-driven approach. Um, but the approach that the same consultants and coaches use for changing an organization is component-driven. Like you've got a Scrum Master, you focus on the, the team components. Uh, like I said, and then you've got the agile coach and they focus on the middle management component and the enterprise coach focuses on the C-level component. And so that approach, and that's, it's not even about Scrum Master or agile coaches, it's more like the, the, the component-driven approach of changing organizations, the, the, the layered approach, that's, that's just something that I don't get. Like if you really want to change the organization, if you really want to succeed with Scrum, then it impacts the entire organization. Mm-hmm. So you cannot just focus only on team level and expect to succeed with Scrum. You should sort of like influence the organization from from the outside in, from the inside out, uh, from the team perspective outwards, like to the wider environment of the organization. Yeah, I always recommend for um, organizations I'm working with with Scrum masters, they'll ask the question, "Well, how many teams can a Scrum master work with?" And I'll tell them, "Well, a good Scrum master can do two or three, but a great Scrum master can do one because I really want them to go vertical in the organization. I don't want them to go horizontal." And so I think if you took that mindset as an organization that like we don't need enterprise coaches, we don't need agile coaches, our Scrum masters are just as they get better are going to just go to different levels of the organization and, and spend a lot more time there. Uh, maybe everybody just goes all levels, but people that are really good at being scrum masters can go all levels and go wherever they need to go in the organization. And they just get really good at that. And then you don't need those extra roles. And then they're actually building the skills that they need to do it on their own rather than having to rely on people from the outside with very high hour rates. So I think that's been very in my mission yeah. for the past couple of years to, to also create, give the strategies and the tools to make that happen, which liberating structures is also something that makes that possible. But that's a whole other topic for another time. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I was going to say, I, I also see that same kind of component um, uh, mentality with, with product owners as well. So you could think about product owners are just down here working with the teams, but it's the directors or the PMO who makes the budgeting decisions or the hiring and firing decisions or w- whatever the case may be. But again, if you can you know, give that autonomy to your product owner to start going vertically instead of just horizontal with teams, you probably see a lot more um, return on investment with that role as well. Cool. So this has been a really great conversation. Um, at this point, is there anything you guys want to plug, Barry and Christian? Uh, there's so much cool stuff we're working on, but I think the best place to go is just to go to our Medium publication. I'm sure you can put the link somewhere in the description. Yep. Um, yep. That's the best starting point because all our content is over there. Awesome. Yeah. 
Awesome. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.